people are afraid of making waves because of this quick trigger we have to labeling someone as a racist. So I think that there is a ton of support there, but unfortunately, it always takes a few really loud, fearless people to be the one to make waves. And obviously, we've chosen to do that in lots of different ways, recognizing that that comes at a price. But I think people are scared. People are scared. This is what we have created. We have created a space where people are afraid to speak up for what they know is right, for what is ethical and moral, you know, to speak out against things that are factually incorrect in a field where like history matters and indigeneity matters and decolonization matters. I mean, the joke is that like Zionism is the one issue that literally if it weren't related to Jews, our field would be all over. They would support it totally. I mean, it's exactly everything they want, but people are desperately afraid to speak up. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. After October 7th, Jews around the world have felt besieged by some erstwhile allies, as some have been silent in the face of rampant anti-Semitism, and others have openly supported Hamas and its genocidal goals. While there have been many people who openly support Jews and Israel, the war in Gaza has also provided a moment of reckoning, as we discovered some unhappy surprises about people whom we thought were our friends. In that context, I'd like to talk about the reaction to October 7th by the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, or ASECT. As an organization dedicated to healthy sexuality, and one which has expressed opinions on hot-button issues unrelated to its core mission, ASECT certainly should have issued a statement condemning the sexual violence against Israelis on October 7th. That, however, did not happen for a long time, and even when it did... The statement felt like a giant hedge. As a result, my friend and Intimate Judaism co-host Tali Rosenbaum, along with some colleagues, resigned from ASECT and composed a letter to the board of directors of ASECT and to its membership, which reads as follows. This letter is being written with a heavy heart. ASECT has been a professional home for many of us, and yet now we must painfully part ways, and we are writing to let you know why. On October 7th, 2023, The worst massacre to befall the Jewish people since the Holocaust was perpetrated by Hamas, a group designated as a terror organization by the United States and the European Union. They relentlessly slaughtered over 1,200 people, mostly Jews, maimed over 5,500 more, brutally raped, tortured, and defiled women, slaughtered babies, and burned people alive, destroyed homes, property, and farms. Hamas terrorists filmed their mass violence with GoPros and with embedded photojournalists. They took over 240 hostages, 136 of whom are still in captivity and are still being brutally abused. And while many people have differing political views about Israel and the Palestinians, we do not ask or expect ASECT to take a stand, even though ASECT has taken political stands on varying issues that we don't all necessarily agree on. Rather, we ask that ASECT reach out to our Israeli colleagues who were and are so impacted by this massacre, and to acknowledge our many Jewish colleagues who have family and loved ones in Israel. We ask that ASECT acknowledge our shock and horror, our collective pain, trauma, and grief. We specifically ask that ASECT 
as an organization in the field of sexuality, speak out against the grotesque sexual violence that was perpetrated on October 7th and that continues in the dark tunnels underneath Gaza. But rather than collegiality and empathy, we got silence. The president of ASECT later said she wasn't sure what to say. She was stuck, and so she chose to say nothing at all for months. They screamed out in horror for other causes, but have somehow been paralyzed into silence when the victims are Jewish. To add insult to injury, when anti-Semitic screeds were posted on the ASECT listserv after the leadership had announced that they were moderating all posts, no one called those posts out. No one was held accountable. No apologies were forthcoming. When some of us tried to denounce the anti-Semitic post and asked for repair, some were actually sanctioned and the rest of us were forcibly silenced by the moderator who refused to post our responses to the denial of the violence. In truth, the anti-Semitism that we're witnessing and experiencing is more of a painful effect of the many years of ASECT prioritizing dogma and politics over professional, respectful dialogue, even when it is based on science and the latest academic literature. Once a diversity of viewpoints is considered harmful and people get kicked off the listserv or expelled from an organization for wrongthink, history has shown that anti-Semitism will flourish, and indeed it has. The president and president-elect of ASECT have made it clear that they really don't care if we leave. Our hope is that those who feel equally devastated but have chosen to stay within ASECT for the time being, as well as those people who are only now becoming aware of how ASECT treated its Jewish members, will continue to insist that changes be made. We believe that the anti-Semitic rot has set into ASECT much like it has set into the halls of the greatest institutions of higher learning in our country. It will fester and grow if not acknowledged and addressed. That's the letter. The tepid or non-reaction of ASECT is not just about that one organization, however, but instead about general institutional sluggishness or refusal to support Jews in the wake of the war against Hamas. This has been happening all over, and even as we sadly get used to it, it remains extremely troubling. For that reason, I felt it was important to discuss what happened with ASECT with Tali Rosenbaum, psychotherapist Dr. Shoshana Bulow, and sexual educator Dr. Logan Lefkoff. We also discussed the trauma of October 7th and the war, both in and out of Israel, as well as the binary thinking that has led to the demonization of Jews, the prevalence of anti-Semitism, agendas that are embedded in the system to the Jewish people's detriment, the fight against anti-Israel activity across the diaspora, and more. We'll begin that conversation in just a moment. First, let me remind you to subscribe to the Orthodox Conundrum podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and please rate it and write a review. Please subscribe to my Substack, Orthodox Conundrum Commentary. Last week, I posted an article entitled Revenge, where I argued that the oft-heard claim that Israel's war against Hamas has devolved into a means of seeking revenge is either ignorant or just plain anti-Semitic. The link is in the description of this podcast, so get your free subscription today. And finally, remember that JCH Podcast Productions is the best place for you to go in order to produce your podcast from start to finish. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com so that we can discuss helping you make a high-quality, professional, and popular podcast. Tali Yehuda Rosenbaum needs little introduction to listeners of this podcast. She is an individual and couples therapist and a certified sex therapist and supervisor. Tali and I together co-host the Intimate Judaism Podcast, and she is the co-author of the book, I Am For My Beloved, A Guide to Enhanced Intimacy for Married Couples. Dr. Shoshana Bulo is a psychotherapist in private practice in New York City. She currently teaches and supervises in the Couples Therapy Training and Education Program at the William Allenson White Institute. 
She has also taught and supervised family, couples, and sex therapy at the Furkoff Graduate School of Psychology, the NYU Langone Program in Human Sexuality, the Ackerman Institute for the Family, the Mount Sinai School of Medicine, and the Family Institute in Jerusalem. Shoshana currently runs supervision groups for therapists looking to improve their couples therapy skills. She was an ASEC certified sex therapist and sex therapy supervisor for the past 17 years. Since her resignation from ASECT, she is now certified through the International Association of Psychotherapy Therapists. Dr. Logan Levkoff is an internationally recognized expert on sexuality and relationships. She speaks on a wide range of issues, including sexual health and sexuality education, parenting, combating anti-Semitism in school settings, trends in sexuality, deconstructing double standards, relationship hurdles, and intimacy, consent, and the role of sexuality and representation, or lack thereof, in pop culture, business, and politics. As a thought leader in her field, Logan frequently appears on television, including Good Morning America, The Today Show, The Rachel Ray Show, The CBS Early Show, Oprah, Fox News Channel, and CNN. She was also the host of Cafe Mom Show, Mom Ed, in the bedroom, and was a sexuality expert for the first three seasons of the breakout hit for A&E, Married at First Sight. Logan is the author of two parenting books, Got Teens, The Dr. Mom's Guide to Sexuality, Social Media, and Other Adolescent Realities, with Dr. Jennifer Wider, and Third Base Ain't What It Used to Be, where your kids are learning about sex today and how to teach them to become sexually healthy adults. Tali Rosenbaum, Dr. Shoshana Bulow, and Dr. Logan Levkoff, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Hi. Thank you for having us. I'd like to open up by asking about the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, which is ASECT, and perhaps Shoshana, I'll open up with you. Could you just tell me and our listeners what that is and what its goals are? Uh, that's a good question. Um, what it is is... Um has been, anyway, the certifying body for sex therapists, educators, and, and therapists, supervisors. You know, it was always sort of a, a kind of more broad-based organization, like, it, you know, that has a membership that's not certified. It became more of an advocacy organization as well. But that sort of happened, from my perspective, after I joined. Like, I, I, I don't think I was aware of exactly the direction it was coming in. But I would say that uh, people often would say that there's another organization that was probably a little more on the intellectual research clinical side, and ASEC was more the group that certified sex therapists, educators, therapists, supervisors. Maybe Logan and Polly can be more expansive about that. I mean, I would add that, you know, the ASEC certification is not an easy one to obtain. There are three levels of certification. You can be certified as a counselor, an educator or a therapist. And if you're a therapist, you have to have some minimal requirements, a master's degree in social work or psychology or counseling. You have to do a great deal of academic work. In addition to the regular requirements that you have for your profession, you also have to study a lot about sexuality, all different aspects of sexuality. You have to do a lot of supervision. And so it's actually a very valuable kind of certification. People work very hard for it. They invest a lot of time in it. They invest a lot of money. And in exchange for that, you have a certain amount of credibility in your field because you went through this process, whether you're a therapist or an educator or a counselor, depending on what your background is, people know that when you're certified, you've done a lot of work to get there. And it really does help you professionally. So I think that that's important to say that because we also recognize that for people to cut their ties with ASECT, 
because of, and we're here to talk about their response, or I should say their lack of response about uh, sexual violence that occurred on October 7th. So first of all, we want to say that for people to kind of cut their ties is a very big deal. People worked very hard and invested a lot of resources in becoming certified. And what we're here to talk about is how many of us gave all that up because of there being a sexual health organization who was not able to unequivocally condemn the sexual violence that occurred on October 7th. Shoshana, do you want to add something? I do want to add something, and I'm sorry, um, because I spent a lot of years actually volunteering for the organization as a reviewer of applications. And while I completely agree with Holly, a lot of people spent a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of resources, a lot of investment to become certified. And I think that for the general public, knowing that somebody has done that, you know, a lot of people might say to their friend, hey, do you have a therapist to recommend? A lot of people won't say, you know, I'm struggling sexually. Who do you recommend as a sex therapist? And so they look online and this is a way to know somebody's credentials. Although I can tell you, I know many, many, many phenomenal sex therapists who are not certified by ASECT. But what I found and I would complain about to ASECT was that as long as a person dotted their I's and crossed their T's, they got it. And so they did put a lot of time and hours and money and resources into it. But sometimes I would say, wow, this person <laughs> failed every course in college. Like, or, or wow, this person like will write an essay that clearly shows a horrible bias. And often it was to people who were more conservative or cisgender or traditional. And I'd say like, what difference does it make who the bias is towards? Like uh, we're going to put asex and premature on someone who has this horrible bias. And the answer was basically, we see it, we get it. Sometimes they'd ask for more information or ask for something, but the yes, the answer was, we give it to everyone who goes through the process because there's no exam at the end. There's no supervisor who's going to say, wow, you've just spent several thousand dollars with me. And you know what? I can't, I can't recommend you. So the process is actually a little, you know, I don't think the public understands that. And, and I don't know how you feel about that, Tali, because, you know, I absolutely agree in terms, I mean, I think it's a whole separate conversation about whether or not your sex therapist needs to be certified as a sex therapist, or whether or not sex therapy needs to be distinct from regular therapy. As you know, I'm psychodynamically trained, and I don't even do that much behavioral sex therapy. So I think that is an important conversation. But I think we kind of want to stick to this idea of how sexual health organizations, including ASECT, but not only ASECT, have failed to stand behind the Jewish people and the people of Israel. Logan, what did you want to add? As the lone sexuality educator, not therapist, <laughs> on the call, you know, back when I was starting decades and decades ago, ASECT was the only organization that even acknowledged that sexuality education was a field, a, a legitimate field. And, and and to be perfectly candid, even within ASECT back in the day, it always felt like sex educators were kind of like, for lack of a better term, like the like the ugly stepchild, like <laughs> we were there, but no one really wanted to acknowledge that we were there. And then all of a sudden, things started to change with the times. And, and interestingly enough, it always felt to me like as the advocacy position grew and changed, all of a sudden, educators started to have more of a voice. 
which is great in a lot of ways, but the field of sexuality education has changed so much. The voices are so different and the clear um, agendas are are so embedded now in the system that it's impacted everything. Um, and I think that what's happening in sex education, and now there are a lot of other organizations that are certifying bodies, not as big in name as, as ASECT, but educators have a bigger a bigger voice now. And I think that a lot of educators are leading this charge. And I say that as someone who feels a great deal of shame about my field and, and what education has done to us as Jews and Israelis. And and I think that that's a that's a big piece of it. Education, the sex ed field has has changed and dictated a lot of where this has has gone and not in great ways. Okay, Logan, I'm going to come back to that in a moment. But first, I want to hear Tali explain what specifically happened with ASECT so that our listeners have a better idea of why we're having this conversation and the specific instance that took place. And then we'll get to some other topics as well. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we jumped into a conversation without a lot of context. So, you know, the three of us are sexual health professionals and we're mental health professionals. And Logan is an educator. And we all are coming from having done a lot of work in the field. And this field has been pioneered by Jewish people from the beginning. And Jews have been very much a part of the field of sexual health, sexual education, and sex therapy, even way before Dr. Ruth. We're talking about some of the real pioneers in sexual health. And one of the things that we do, and this is, by the way, orthodox conundrum. So what I can tell you and Shoshana, you also identify as orthodox. And, you know, part of being an orthodox sex therapist is also kind of navigating the very kind of traditional values that we uphold, such as, you know, monogamy, for example, in a field which very much expects for their professionals to be very well versed in ethical non-monogamy and other sorts of non-traditional, I would say, sexual orientations and such. And that's fine. I mean, I think that we can all be very open-minded and very liberal. And most of us in the field do tend to really be able to contain differences. But when those differences become so pervasive that there's really very little room for for their traditional approach, as I think was mentioned before by Shoshana, then it becomes a little bit problematic. So one thing that I think that we as Jews and we as people, as humans have always kind of agreed with all the sexual health organizations is in the sexual rights, talking about human rights, sexual rights, consent, autonomy, all of these very, very important principles. And I think on Intimate Judaism, we even have an episode where we talk about the principles according to the World Association of Sexology, the principles and how we compared them to Judaism and looked at some of the conflicts. We all know where we stand on this idea of consent. And so when there's an organization who not only has been talking about the importance of consent, but also has been talking about the importance of human rights. When there was the incident in America with George Floyd, the organization came out with a statement supporting Black Lives Matter. And by the way, that really doesn't have very much to do with sexual health. But there were other sexual health related issues, LGBT rights, trans rights, abortion, when the Roe versus Wade thing came out, these are all very, very important. Nobody is saying that they shouldn't be, but these are political statements. And then to suddenly, on October 7th, when there were mass, I'm not even going to say it, I'm not going to go into it, but when you know we, our people, 
became the victims of sexual violence, suddenly they're not political. Suddenly they're not going to be able to make a statement. I mean, we really felt let down by an organization that we have been working so hard to kind of work with. I've, I've I worked on committees in ASECT for years. I mean, this was years ago, but still, I got a lot of my education from them. I got a lot of my values. And here this is happening where we talk about identity conflict and we talk about the crisis of trauma. And here's another crisis, like who who am I in this organization? Who am I as a sex, sexual health professional if this is the response of the sexual health world? Let me ask you, Tali, just to continue along those lines. What do you mean the response? Like what exactly did they say or not the say? The lack of response. Well, why don't I let Logan and Shoshana kind of jump in because Logan, I know you're very active on Instagram, so you've been posting a lot about this. And Shoshana, I just want to say, is not active on social media. However, she has been extremely active in our separate listserv that I believe, Shoshana, you put together for many, many, many Jews and allies, not just Jews, who have started talking to each other about some of the outrageous posts that were put on the ASEC listserv that were blatantly anti-Semitic. And so um, Shoshana kind of put together a group and then we kind of formed these two groups. There was one group that was writing a letter of resignation and there was a time where there was many, many, many people who were saying, we are resigning. And then unfortunately over time, many of those people did not resign. And so Shoshana helped draft a second letter, which was a letter stating to the ASECT board of directors that we're staying in ASECT, but we expect these changes to occur. But to go back to a little history, I would like to let Shoshana and Logan speak. Okay, Logan, let's hear from you. How do you see this history? What happened or didn't happen with ASECT? In the spirit of full disclosure, I have always been a little bit of a lone wolf. <laughs> I don't work for an organization. I've been affiliated with organizations and certainly certified by ASECT, and I'm an ASECT supervisor. But I've always really been on my own as an independent person, which has been amazing in a lot of ways. I am beholden to no one but myself, which means I have the freedom to speak out whenever I want, sometimes like a bull in a china shop. And I acknowledge that that is a lot, that feels like a lot of what I do these days. Um, But also, you know, it can also feel a little bit lonely when you don't, you don't necessarily have allies and, or, or you don't feel like you have allies. And so I have felt, unfortunately, over the last couple of years, quite honestly, this didn't start, this didn't start October 7th for, I don't think for any of us, but I can say clearly for me, two and a half years ago in May of 2021, I watched the sex ed field after Hamas was launching rockets into Israel, call Israel, Goliath and Hamas, David. And in that very moment, watching the people whose voices I had amplified, the people whose whose issues and and fights I had proudly been on the front lines of, even if they weren't directly my own issues, I watched them all show me exactly who they were, which it did not take them a lot to show how much they hated Jews, right? Even if they didn't say it directly. Can I ask you a quick question just about that? I'm sorry to interrupt, sure. but what do you mean they were talking about David versus Goliath? This is before October 7th. This did not involve any sexual violence. This was rockets directed from Hamas against civilian populations. Forget whose side they're on. Why are they weighing in at all on a sexual education <laughs> listserv or something like that? I know. 
because for some reason, our field has become one where it has become a field of binaries of oppressed versus oppressor, of racial binaries, of no nuance. And all of a sudden, in this role of sexuality organization as, as advocacy group, lots of people feel compelled to take on these other issues. And yes, I mean, imagine, um, imagine looking at this May 2021 conflict saying like, huh, terrorists there that's david like obviously they're they're resistance they're freedom fighters i mean it was so offensive and so painful that truth be told i kind of fell apart i sat on my couch and cried for like days at a time i started unfollowing and blocking people who i i i cared about deeply who were you know people i had either mentored or worked with or taught i started just getting rid of, getting rid of all of them and and in that moment like after i had done my tears i made a decision that I was done fighting for anyone anyone else's issues at the expense of my own. And that, you know, for me, tikkun olam has kind of been this term that has been um, bastardized in some ways. It was never heal the world at the expense of yourself. And I think that we've spent a lot of time wanting to be so many things to so many people that we forgot that self-sacrifice was not supposed to be one of those values. And from that moment, I decided that I was going to put my Judaism and my Zionism front and center, regardless of what the cost was. And well, obviously there is a there is a cost, but one that I was willing to pay. Is this what you were referring to before when you said that there are agendas embedded in the system or was that something different? Yeah, I mean, I think it's all embedded in the system. I think this idea that, you know, the, the biggest problem, and I see it, I see it in schools, I see it in our organizations, no one really knows who Jews are. <laughs> that's that's real. I mean, at, at its core, we are we are often perceived as solely a faith, not a tribe of people, not an ethnicity, not a culture, not not a group that crosses all racial categories and identifiers. No one knows what to do with us. So they only see us, quite frankly, in the very like Ashkenazi, white New York Jew kind of way, which I understand that how I present. So I, I, I get the joke in that. But I think because of that and there hasn't been enough conversation in the boards and in the organizations that have talked about the complexities and the and the history and by the way how about indigeneity of you know Jews in Judea that all of a sudden that conversation has been hijacked by people who have a very serious hatred of Jews and it didn't take them long to show the world okay thank you for that Shoshana what would you like to add to that in terms of your experience in dealing with these kinds of biases that you've seen such that it led to your resignation so I agree with uh, Logan, and I think Tali, you might have said it as well, that this didn't start on October 7th. And it's not unique to ASEPT, is the truth. It's it's really widespread in um, a lot of psychotherapy training programs, PhD programs, schools of social work. We see that in the in the media, even, you know, professional organizations. It's pretty embedded at this point. So, like, I remember in 2018... After the, you know, I'm pretty personally connected to the Pittsburgh community and, you know, this one, I, I, I hate, I hate naming places, but um, one of the organizations that was very much a part of my professional life, you know, they, they would talk about everything else, but that didn't come up. So I like called and I said, I wrote to them first. I said, what happened? Like, like, you are you know, speaking about the tree of life shooting in the October? Tree of life is a massacre. You know, for me, it was like people I knew. It was, it was like, it was very devastating. I mean, it's devastating for the whole Jewish community. And they said, oh, you're right. And like, what do you want to talk about it? But like, it was clear that like, it it didn't take on uh, importance. And then, 
it happened again during the Coleyville hostage taking. And again, I wrote, and again, they met with me. And again, they like just couldn't, couldn't bring themselves to have empathy or outrage for what happens to Jews the same way that they did for other communities. And so after that one, I actually organized, uh, so Tali's right, I'm not a social media person, but I'm actually quite an active person in these things. And, um, you know, this is, ASEC's not the only organization I've been actively doing this with, Um, but I had wrote something to that particular listserv I'm trying to remember it was the post Coleyville, but I, but at the time somebody also posted something that was political and anti-Semitic in my mind. And I wrote to the um, listserv moderator and I said, do you allow political stuff? Like I want to respond to this, but I, I actually, if, if this is not an okay post, I'd rather you just tell them to not do this. And the person wrote back and said, no, they're actually not supposed to do it. I'm going to contact them. And then the person wrote in again to the listserv saying that, he was treated in a racist way. He was shut down and everybody started to jump at it. Like, oh my God, oh my God. And meanwhile, I knew some of these people who, oh my God, and they didn't know what happened actually. They just heard someone say this. And so they jumped to his defense. And then um, I actually pulled it up because the the head of this organization at the time wrote a thing saying basically how people of color put themselves out there, you know, take risks, put themselves out there publicly. And white people tend to do this, try to assert their power privately and to, and, and all the people who wrote in were Jewish. (laughs) So, so I wrote and I said to her, I said, did you mean to say that? Because do you hear what you said? What was even the motivation behind saying that, at least publicly? What did that even mean? Because he kept saying the organization treated me in a racist way because they told him that his post was not allowed. Wow. And no one even knew what post was was being referred to. It was, it was really pathetic. Anyway, so I have been like kind of trying to actively fight this stuff for a long time. And, you know, my belief, sort of like what Logan is saying about the agendas and the system, is it's even more than the like the anti-Semitism in the system, it's a system where, as you said, Logan, that there's a, it's very binary. There's an oppressor, there's an oppressed. You're a victim, you're a victimizer. Like, you know, in a, in a world where even people will say like, wow, binaries are dangerous, except when it comes to that. And Jews always get put in the side of the binary that we're the victimizers, we're the oppressors, we're white, because you're either white or person of color and all nuanced gets lost in these conversations. And and if you say it wrong, if you do it wrong, if you believe the wrong thing, then you are, you pay the price. And so that's not only about anti-Semitism, obviously, but I think it's a culture that foments anti-Semitism. And so when Logan, you talk about the agenda and the system, I think the agenda is way bigger. Like the 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 fight that I'm trying to actually address is even bigger like anti-semitism is a horrendous offshoot of the problem in my mind shoshana i want to get back to something you mentioned in a few moments you mentioned they and some of the people who oh my god and i want to hear about who the they is and who the they is not but first i want to ask if tali wants to add anything to what you said you know the whole thing to me is terribly ironic because you know we were talking about the mental health field basically. And in the mental health field, especially in sex therapy, many of us are 
couples therapists, we're relational therapists. And in understanding trauma, we also understand how trauma affects relationships. And we understand how in times of trauma, we look for connection. And when we talk about conflict, we're spending our lives in a room with couples where we're trying to teach them how to use mentalization and theory of mind to understand what the other person is going through. And we basically talk about being able to hold conflicting narratives. I mean, if you're good at what you do as a couples therapist, that means that you must know how to recognize nuance and recognize that it's not just about right or wrong and not just about black or white. So for example, when I wrote into the listserv on October 8th, because I think somebody started out by saying, how are our friends in Israel doing, which I very much appreciated. And I wrote in and I was expecting like a lot of supportive responses. And there were some supportive responses, but there were also responses that were, you know, very much about what Israel was doing and kind of saying that you cannot talk about anti-Semitism if you don't talk about Islamophobia and you cannot talk about the sexual violence in Israel without talking about the violence and sexual violence in Palestine. I'm not aware of sexual violence in Palestine, but I am aware that there are many, many Palestinians, many Palestinians being killed, you know, and to think that that's not okay to say, it's totally okay. I mean, I'm not saying to people, I don't want to hear anything. No, you're not allowed to say anything to me about that. Of course you are. Of course we have to be able to hold that our situation is very, very complex and that we feel so victimized by what happened, but that we also understand that we're in a situation that is not ideal. You know, war is not an ideal situation. But what they're saying is you're not allowed to say this. It has to be 100% this way. There's no way to hold two truths at once. And I find it really fascinating that we're talking about people who are supposed supposedly supposed to be doing exactly that for a living. Well, then the people who are supposed to be doing exactly that for a living gets me back to the question I wanted to ask Shoshana. And I'll throw it out to everybody. I'm curious what that really means, because I'm guessing there are some allies. I hope it's not just the three of you. Obviously, more than that, signed that letter and people did resign from ASAC. But who are some of the people? Because before our conversation began, one of the questions I was going to ask, which I think, unfortunately, you've all answered, is, is this a leadership of ASEC thing or is it a membership of ASEC thing? And from everything that you've said, you've largely implied or said explicitly that it's a lot of the members as well. So let me start with you, Shoshana. Is this the majority of the ASEC members? Is this a small group that's vocal? How would you define it, at least in, in your experience? So I, I don't know. Um, I don't know how many people actually are on the listserv. I think the organization has over 4,000 people and 4,000 voices aren't weighing in. I think a lot of people are not interested in the listserv because it can get explosive. It can get dangerous. It feels unsafe to a lot of people. It's not okay to have certain kinds of dialogue, certain kinds of questions. And so a lot of people just ignore it. So I would say my issue my issue was more with the leadership, both their silence post October 7th. And then when they find, and then they said a, a statement is coming. And then I forgot how many months it took. And the statement was like, we're just not sure or something like that. It was, it was, you know, I'm trying to like, is Zionism, anti-Zionism? It was like, I, I, I froze, I, you know, and other things, you know, people would post on the listserv that, I would say are actually reasonable things to ask, you know, professional questions, they could get kicked off. And so 
I don't know how many of people in the membership actually feel this way. I didn't leave because, I mean, there were definitely people who posted pretty blatantly anti-Semitic things. My issue is that it wasn't called out and it wasn't like it, the leadership didn't seem to mind that when they filtered and they began to mod heavily moderate the listserv, the things that didn't get through were when Jews would post something, the stuff that somehow made it through and it was more than one time uh, and stayed up way too long or were pretty anti-Semitic posts. Do I think that that's a majority of the organization? I, I don't think so, but I, you know, I just don't know what the majority feels. I'm going to weigh in myself as a non-ASIC member, but in general, one of the things that has bothered me in the world of pro-Israel non-Jews since October 7th has been their silent acquiescence. We like you. We appreciate you. We're going to vote for pro-Israel candidates. But the anti-Israel crowd is loud and vocal and protesting loudly, and it bothers me. And I have contacts and friends in the Christian world, and at times— the fact, this is what you were saying, Shoshana, about they may be ignoring it. That's exactly what I think is part of the problem. Obviously, I prefer tacit support than someone who is against us. But I prefer something more than tacit support. We are under attack as a people and as a nation. And in my mind, the people who support Israel, the people who support Jews should be more vocal. Obviously, there are some. I don't mean to be sweeping. But I feel that given the numbers, according to polls, who support Israel in the United States of America— I don't know why there hasn't been a massive multi-million person rally of, for example, evangelical Christians who are supposed to be very pro-Israel. Why aren't they in the streets protesting in support of Israel? We could use that support. I think that the government could see that support in a positive way. So getting back to your point, Shoshana, when you talk about people ignoring it, that may not mean they're anti-Semitic, but I don't mean that that necessarily absolves them of total blame. My point was that they may not have even seen it. Uh -huh, the, the, okay. They may not be reading the listserv. They may not be active on the listserv. I will say that I even had non-Jewish clients reach out to me. And so I, I, my experience hasn't been that, like, where are you? And some non-Jewish colleagues have been really amazing. I also just want to say something that is like a big issue for me is that I, I never use the words pro-Israel because the opposite is anti-Israel. I always say Israel supporting. And I think sometimes people get like because of their feelings about Netanyahu or about right wing government or about whatever it is, they they start to feel like they're supporting something that they actually don't feel good about, even though they support Israel. And so I think the umbrella is way bigger in the um, Israel supporting community. You know, I don't like what China does, <laughs> you know, but I'm not anti-China or, you know, I'm not anti-anyone. So I, I, I think that it's a language that is a problem, actually, that I, I have been fighting to try to change in the Israel supporting community. <laughs> okay, that's an important point. Thank you for adding that there. And let me just make one caveat. Of course, I also have Christian and non-Jewish friends who have reached out to me as well. So I don't want to say that I haven't heard it at all. Of course I have. I just mean that in terms of the numbers that supposedly support Israel, they've been somewhat quiet. Logan, what did you want to add to that? So I, I think that there is a there is an underlying challenge. And I've seen it. Um, I've gone toe-to-toe. -to -toe. I, have, I have a freshman in college and a freshman in high school. And I've spent the last couple of years fighting this in the schools, as well as online and obviously in professional organizations, too. It's interesting because a few people even reached out to me in the last few days and said, I didn't renew my ASECT membership because I've been reading what you've been posting and writing, and it really impacts me. And I am so deeply, deeply appreciative of that. 
And at the same time, I also know that people are afraid of making waves because of this quick trigger we have to labeling someone as a racist, right? If you're standing for this, if you're speaking out, if you're challenging the system as the system currently exists, all of a sudden they are so deeply afraid of what's what the blowback is going to be. So I think that there is a ton of support there, but Unfortunately, it always takes a few really loud, fearless people to be the one to make waves. And obviously, we've chosen to do that in lots of different ways, recognizing that that comes at a price. But I think people are scared. People are scared. This is what we have created. We have created a space where people are afraid to speak up for what they know is right, for what is ethical and moral, you know, to speak out against things that are factually incorrect in a field where like, history matters and indigeneity matters and decolonization matters. I mean, the joke is that like Zionism is the one issue that literally if it weren't related to Jews, our fields would be all over. They would support it totally. I mean, it's exactly everything they want, but people are desperately afraid to speak up. And I think that that's what we're seeing, though Though maybe as, as more of us are doing this and more of us come with our facts and our very targeted responses, maybe some of that will start to change. I, I think there are enough cracks in the organization now that people are, people are pissed and they have every right to be. I mean, I think that pissed is an understatement, but hopefully... Hopefully rage will start to <laughs> take over. At least that's how I operate. I definitely agree with that. Has the refusal by ASEC to respond to this situation in a way that we would approve of, has that added any trauma to victims of sexual violence as you see it? Do you think that has been a problem or not so much because this is a professional organization rather than a lay organization? I think it would be impossible to answer that with anything but um, no, of course, it's it's trauma inducing. I mean, because look, we are all human beings within this profession, too. We come to the field with a certain amount of experiences, good, bad, and all of the other descriptors. There is a huge amount of betrayal that I feel that the field that I've devoted my life for, that I've worked so hard for, and by the way, worked so hard for spending the first half of my career getting death threats for being a sex educator, and then called a groomer, and all those other fun things, and now I'm getting death threats for being a public Jew. By the way, I wouldn't change a thing. This is exactly who I am, and this is exactly why I do what I do, but it would be impossible to say that it doesn't have an impact. The The sense of betrayal I feel from people who I thought were my, my friends, I thought we had shared values, and to see the... I mean, silence sometimes would be nice. I would rather have silence than have what people are posting and speaking out against in some way. So the answer is, yeah, I think the trauma for all of us as professionals is real, even though I even though I haven't been super active in ASECT in a long time. I, I was once on the board. I once was head of the public relations and, and media committee. And I could tell you when I needed to come out with a statement, I came out with it right away. I know it doesn't take that long. Okay. So th that tells me a lot <laughs> right away. I mean, we talk about believing women, right? We talk about believing victims. Women, I think it should be believed men too. And it's absolutely traumatizing. It, in fact, what we know in trauma is that it's not even so much about what happened. It's obviously what happened, but it's also, it's so important to be believed, to be able to tell your story and be believed and be validated and, and have the opportunity to receive compassion and empathy and this idea of writing about our violation and then having people tell us, well, you know, basically you deserved it 
or you asked for it. It's like hearing, you know, your skirt was too short. What were you doing walking around by yourself at night? It's that same kind of secondary trauma. I don't know if I'm using that correctly, but it's an additional type of trauma that adds to the initial trauma. This really leads us to the whole conversation about how we're affected by trauma on so many different levels, whether it happened to us or it happened to someone we know, or, you know, there are so many different ripples, obviously in Israel, but as we see, not just in Israel, we see how Jews all over the world are affected. So I want to ask you all about that as well. And Tali, let's stick with you for a moment to talk about Israel. And then we can ask Shoshana and Logan about what they see outside of Israel. I'd like to ask about that trauma that people have had as a result of the war and as a result of the sexual violence that took place on October 7th and afterwards. Obviously, we can't go too much in depth in the time that we have. But can you tell us, Tali, some of the issues that people have had to face as a result of the war and the attendant issues that have happened? Well, I mean, that's that's really a huge conversation. I mean, we're talking a lot here about trauma, obviously. You know, we have people who are still not back in their homes, and there are still rockets all the time in the South and in the North, and there's unrest. And so we certainly are still not at a point of talking about post-traumatic stress disorder, because post-traumatic stress disorder is when the threat is no longer there and you're still having the symptoms of acute stress. But we're having what's called prolonged stress. And what I actually want to say in regard to that is I don't want to talk so much about the country going to pieces because we're not. I want to talk more about our resilience and the fact that one of the factors that make us so resilient is our connections and our relationships and the way that we are there for one another. I'm not saying there isn't trauma every day. I mean, there are soldiers who unfortunately are coming back without limbs and those are the ones that come back. And, you know, every day there's somebody else that you know whose child is or grandchild, or, you know, it's it's just, it's heartbreaking. We're living in a very heartbreaking time. It definitely is trauma, but it's also a tremendous amount of grief. And so what we're seeing is this kind of whole idea of trying to stay resilient, trying to use the resources. There's a lot of awareness of trauma. People talk about it. There's a lot of talk about how to debrief, how to debrief soldiers. There's a lot of missions. We're talking to people who are coming on the missions. I've been talking a lot about war and the effect on intimate relationships, on couples' relationships, soldiers who are coming back from Milu'im, and what's happening to their relationship when they've been in a wartime kind of state of mind and their partners are, you know, kind of ready for them to come home and take over with the kids and the dishes. And, you know, there's all sorts of scenarios that are coming up. But I do have to say that we really have a lot of resources. There are a lot of webinars and a lot of podcasts where this is being talked about a lot. We did a podcast within the first couple of weeks of the war where we talked about the effect of the war. We also did a study, two colleagues and I, we did a study that was already published about the effect of war on sexuality. And we looked at things like exposure. And we found that just watching the, the videos and just seeing without even necessarily being there, but that exposure to these very disturbing things that happened is definitely correlated with sexual issues. Having prolonged acute stress is correlated with sexual issues. But we also were surprised to find that many people talked about how they continue to want to be intimate with their partners. And I think that that is part of our resilience. We are not going to see an overall downward shift in relationships. Some relationships won't make it, but they probably there are predictors for that. 
It could take up a whole podcast, but I hope that that was a good summary. Yes, thank you. That's very helpful. And I'll say that from talking to a lot of people, and in fact, I was visiting my parents for a few days last weekend, it seems to me just, and this is obviously my own anecdotal experience, that the emotional connection between people in Israel and at least the United States, I presume all of Chutzlaretz, has become stronger, even as the experiential dimension has widened and become a bigger gap, because obviously it's a very different sort of experience. So I'd like to ask you, Shoshana, and then I'd like to hear from Logan as well, about some of the issues of trauma that Jewish people are experiencing in the wake of October 7th. In your practice, people you've seen in the United States, what sorts of issues are there? Obviously, it's quite different from soldiers coming home from war, but I assume that there are plenty of issues of trauma that people are dealing with there as well. I often say, like, I, I hate to, like, I even hate talking about <laughs> what's going on at ASEC because it's really so small in comparison with what's going on to Israeli, you know, in Israel and to Israelis. And so uh, I want to recognize that, you know, that the trauma here is, there is trauma, I think, going on, but it's, it's, it's different. And it's, I just think we have to be careful not to sort of like get some focus that I feel like. The hierarchy of trauma that yeah, Shashank is exactly. referring to. First of all, in Zionist communities in the United States, you know, there's been people who, I mean, I remember walking to Shul on October, I guess it was, I don't remember, I guess it was the seventh. Like I had already heard that things, that something was going on. And I saw somebody who had moved from Israel leaving shul early. And I knew, I knew he was, he was leaving and he did. He left, he went back to his unit. He went to, you know, and he left his wife and four kids. So there have definitely been people in our community who go back, relatives in our community who, who, who like, have suffered losses and, and horrible, horrible losses. And I remember we had like a, a, a meeting in our shul just and one woman said like her aunt had lived in, I forgot which of the communities in the, you know, near Gaza. And she used to go and help Gazan kids get medical care. She would drive them and she's dead, you know, like, like these were really left-wing communities, <laughs> very like peace loving people. And anyway, so, the, you know, it's, it's, it's impacted us both like in that sense, it's, it's different. And the other piece of the trauma is, I mean, like I remember a friend of mine telling me that she was like scared to go outside because uh, right near where she lived in Manhattan, there were a lot of protests and she felt like it was menacing. She was scared to walk outside during the protests. There was a thing about a coffee shop where the walker, workers all left, you know, because of their Zionist owner, <laughs> you know. And and I want to just say that, Tali, you mentioned... Um, the trauma, I want to say that there's also, there's a trauma of, of gaslighting, um, not just saying you deserved it, but the trauma of it didn't happen and prove it. And there's been so many people saying, that, that goes back to that believe women that you were talking about or believe, believe victims, you know? So, you know, and you feel really alone. I tied a ribbon around my tree outside my house um, and my car was keyed. Um, so I'm just saying like, there's anxiety. I, I don't want to compare it, but I, I am not going to say it doesn't exist. I didn't take the ribbon down, by the way, but it's uh, scary. I hear that. 
I don't want to try to talk about a hierarchy of anxiety or of trauma, even though it does exist, obviously, but trauma remains trauma. And just because it may not be the same as the level of somebody whose kid is in Gaza right now doesn't mean it's not very disturbing. Correct. I want to also say I went to Israel at the end of November. One of my kids, you know, was she didn't say don't go, but she was a little worried. And then she said, although I have to be honest, it's probably going to actually feel good to be in a place where no one's going to tell you it didn't happen and no one's going to be ripping down hostage pictures. You're not going to be scared to talk about it. And that's like a pretty awful thing to say that going into a war zone will actually in some in some way feel like you're with your people. That makes a lot of sense. Emotionally, it's safer, even if physically it may not be. Logan, let me ask you, what have you seen in terms of trauma that people have experienced? And I'll ask as well, does this specifically affect couples in any ways? Has it affected intimacy in some ways, as well as other traumas that you've seen? Well, I think I think it's impossible for you not to make it personal. Again, recognizing that my experience in the diaspora is, is very, very different. Um, I just came back from Israel. I've been there twice since October 7th. I'll be there again in two and a half weeks again with my family and then another three weeks later. My reaction to all of this is a innate need to be there that I feel um, I have felt admittedly for years, but it just put a giant exclamation point on it October 7th. It is the only place where I feel like I can breathe. I feel it to be excruciatingly painful being in the United States right now, even in New York City, my, a, a place of lots of Jews and a place that I've always loved. I feel like for me and every person in my circle, we feel like we put on armor the minute we wake up and we don't take it off until the minute we go to bed. We are prepared. I, and I can, I can speak for myself. I am prepared for a fight at any given moment and I am ready. And I'm often ready because I'm also faced with one before the seventh, but exponentially since the seventh, I get death threats every single day online. They're, I mean, they're not that creative, but, you know, they still happen. Being in Israel, uh, you know, one of the things, one of the 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 then I was with as we were volunteering and he's he's serving and he's he's at the uh, border in Lebanon said, you know, I have to be honest, Logan, um, you know, we have the front lines here, but I'm much more concerned about the war that you are facing. Because the war online, the war here goes on, right? And there is a there is a generational impact that we have here that is not comparative at all. But it's a different it's a different type of war that we are living in all the time here. And I would say that in in terms of what I'm witnessing, I mean, I have to say a lot of my students. I mean, I, I wear the dog tag. They ask a lot of questions. They want to know what it's like to be in Israel, and they're thoughtful and kind and and wonderful. But literally, the minute before I, I came to work this morning, I was sitting at a cafe telling someone about what my son was experiencing on a college campus and how he was advocating for himself and all of the things that we were doing. And a, and a man who is my contemporary, if not slightly older, looked at me and said, I'm sorry, I've been eavesdropping. You're raising an unbelievable young man. And he started to cry. And I think that's what so many of us are feeling like here, that our that we feel this immense sadness, this immense joy and pride in being Jewish and being a Zionist and feeling the connection to Israel and wanting to be there and bear witness and make sure stories get told. But I think everyone is just carrying so much that at any given moment, I could say for myself, at any given moment, I will burst into tears. I will also yell very loudly but there's a, there's a lot of there are a lot of tears and i think 
thankfully, I am in communities and working in communities where everyone is incredibly respectful and caring of that. Like each time I've had to say to a school that I work in, hey, I'm leaving for two weeks. <laughs> Their comment hasn't been, when are you going to make it up? Their comment is, you go and be safe and do what you need to do. And so there's a there is a silver lining in all of this that for a lot of people, they get it and they understand and they don't want to be on the other side. They, they want to be on the right side of history. You're speaking about not Jewish people. Not Jewish people. Not Jewish people. But I but I also think and, and not not to I mean, not to sound like the consummate optimist, because I'm not I'm not always that quite, quite honestly. I do think that this was a horrific, horrific wake up call that has galvanized much of the diaspora to realize at the end of the day, being a quiet Jew, being a good Jew, whatever that means, at the end of the day, we're all Jews and we all have this connection and we need Israel as much as, as much as she needs us right now. We need her. We are all one people. And this is a horrific wake up call, but it is one that I think will forever change the Jewish community globally. OK, thank you. And I know we only have a couple minutes left, so I'd like to ask each of you just to sum up one minute each, let's say, of a sentence of a message that you want to convey to everyone listening about what they should do, whether they're in Israel, whether they're outside of Israel, about a message of, it doesn't have to be hope, it could be depressing, if that's what you'd prefer to say. But Logan, since we're speaking with you, why don't we start with you? What's the message that you want to convey to people? Such a tough one. You're starting, you're starting with me, a big, a big sentence at the end. I think the message I, I want to convey to, first, to the world at large, we're not going anywhere. Because the world at large listens to my podcast, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> I hope they, they will. They will moving forward. Let's there. hope, yeah. We're not going anywhere. We've seen this film before. We know how it plays out, but we have lasted thousands and thousands of years with all of the odds stacked against us, and we are still here. Our existence is a miracle, and we should be incredibly proud of that. And I think that the other piece for Israel is, and all of our friends and family in Israel, we need you. We support you. We will be there. And and we also know a lot of us dropped the ball in the last couple of you know years. We're not about to do that anymore. Okay. That was excellent. Shoshana, how about you? What message would you like to impart? I mean, I can echo what Logan just said, but but I also want to add that um I want to say don't be afraid to speak out. I want to say that silence is a dangerous thing. And, you know, as Tali alluded to earlier. You know, there are people who are saying, oh, my God, oh, my God, this is horrible, but then didn't want to leave. I believe silence is complicity in some way. And so I really want to encourage people not to be silent and not to be afraid to speak out and that there is something incredibly freeing about speaking out and about not being afraid to say, you know, what your moral clarity is and, and what your belief is. And like Logan, I, I do want Israelis and my friends and my family and my loved ones to know that like I feel for you and I'm here and I really want to I, I want to be part of the I want to be part of the answer I want to be part of the help you know I I don't want to just sit by silently and I think that's maybe part of the reason I do this and I'm I am so active and I mean I could send you all the letters I've written <laughs> um and there's a lot because I feel like speaking out and speaking clearly and openly and you know uh, like I think I really try to make a tone that is it's not solicitous but it's it's clear but it's also not like to just tell people they're awful 
Um, you know, you asked me earlier and I, you said you want to get to it. We didn't like, who are the, oh my God, God people. Oh my, what I call them, the, oh my God, oh my Godders. <laughs> and a lot of them are really good people. A lot of them are really thoughtful, caring, good people who don't want to see someone suffer, but people want to believe people don't do the work to see what they're actually, oh my Godding. And, and people need to kind of not take everything at face value and not be silent. That is a very important point, and I appreciate you making it. Okay, Tali, let's conclude with you. What message do you want to impart at the end of this podcast? Well, first, I want to say thank you to you, Scott, because I thought for sure that the world, the entire world, every journalist and every publicist, everybody would just be, you know, so thrilled to tell our story of 25 Jews who walked out of ASECT. Nobody knows what ASECT is, and nobody cares about 25 of us. Especially Jews. Yeah. And it's really a small part of something which is much bigger. There are so many organizations and there's so much work being done with with women's rights and justice organizations all over. And so we're just a small part of it. But it was really frustrating to not get anybody to tell our story. You know, there was talk about a publicist who was supposed to tell our story and people even paid him money and he didn't. And then we even talked to some Jewish journalists who just said, this is old news. It's not interesting. And so thank you for saying to me, I don't remember, we were having a conversation and you said, well, why don't we do an episode and talk about it? You know, we have a podcast, you have a podcast, we have a podcast. So I want to thank you for that. And I guess I also just want to say that there's room for all sorts of normal now. You know, I think that the message is, is that we're not we're not normal, but we're also normal because everything is normal and everything is not normal. And I think that being able to hold that there are very many different ways of responding and reacting. And some people are doing this kind of what you're doing on social media, Logan. I mean, that's like really fighting a war also. Everybody fights the way that, you know, everybody's kind of doing their part and also coming and missions and volunteering. I mean, I th- these things are so important. So how everybody acts is really very much a result of their need to respond and be a part of something and do something. And that's the same thing in the personal realm in your homes, in your relationships, with your families. Um, This idea that resilience is really about healing, about being there for each other, about being able to, you know, push the boundaries of the plasticity of our adaptability, our our ability to deal with what's going on and know that we're not going to break, we're not going to get destroyed. While at the same time, some people will, some people physically have lost their lives and some people will, you know, have a very, very difficult time. So there's just a lot of truths happening at the same time. But in a big way, I think that this ability to kind of go through this whole period with as much presence as we can, with with as much awareness and as much ability to communicate, to communicate what's going on for us and to be there, to be there for ourselves and to be there for each other. Thank you, Tali, for your kind words. And also thank you, Tali, for helping me put together this panel today. I appreciate that. And I appreciate all of you joining me today. This is a difficult time for all of us. And I know that your time is very valuable. So I'm genuinely appreciative that you're able to share your wisdom. And I gained a lot out of this today. I'm sure that everybody listening has a lot to think about after this conversation. So Dr. Logan Levkoff, Dr. Shoshana Bulow, and Tali Rosenbaum, thank you again for joining me today. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. 
I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum Podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com. <laughs>